Were you all familiar with the concept of a litmus test? I think back to like high school science class, right? You had, a lit, you had a piece of litmus paper, and it told you whether something was something or something else, and I didn't research that part. So I think it's an acid or a base or something like that, or a tuba and a trombone or something. I don't know what that is. But the idea of when a litmus test, apply it to who we are. You, you apply a couple questions maybe to somebody, throw them out there to see what kind of person they are. Right? That's your litmus test. You know, whether they're Mac or Windows or whether they eat at Moe's or Chipotle or whether they drive in the left-hand lane for hours with their blinker on and don't care. And then when someone asks you, like, oh, yeah, well, you, you met them. What, 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 are they, what are they about? What's, what's his or her deal? And you say, well, they're a blank. You try and sum them up and, well, he's a hmm, whatever that might mean. We try and reduce people into categories sometimes, don't we? And that's not really fair. What about Christianity itself? Are we tempted to reduce Christianity into just a handful of issues or maybe even just one issue? Is that fair and right? Is that actually what the Bible says about Christianity? And I'm going to say no right off the bat, and I think Jesus is as well. So Paul read our passage in Matthew 22. If you are there, please Please join us there. If not, the verses will be on the screen as well. Last week, we saw Jesus telling a powerful and shocking parable of the wedding feast given by the king for his son, how the original invitees, were, they ignored the invitation, and worse yet, some of them lashed out against the king. The parallel of how the general call of the kingdom goes out to everyone, and yet some reject it still. Rejecting the king comes with consequences. And there's only one way into the wedding feast. Have the right clothes on, and only through Jesus Christ can we obtain those clothes through faith to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The reality of knowing the king, knowing who are his people, knowing who's he invited to the wedding feast, and the kingdom people being a chosen people, and salvation being a work of the sovereign and gracious God that we've been singing about this morning. This week, we transition to a series of actually three attempts by various groups of religious leaders to trap Jesus. And so we've once again got a little mini-series within our series of Matthew. So we're going to look at the next three weeks, these, these various groups of people that will try to trap Jesus in his own words. Ultimately, of course, Jesus is far smarter than they are and turns the tables on all of them. And we start with the first of these three stories with a familiar one. The Pharisees are going to try to pin Jesus down to merely picking a side. Is it right or is it wrong? Tell us, Jesus, do we pay taxes or do we not pay taxes? And just to refresh our memory, look at verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him with his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by opinion appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And there it is. They just want that one question. Matthew knows how this all works out. He was there. His eyewitness accounts was looking back on this and writing this account for us, and he knew right away that they were trying to trap him. That's how it, that's how it worked out. We knew that. The intent of Jesus' opponents was very clear. 
the Pharisees went to Jesus with one purpose, to try and entrap him, entangle him, trip him up in his own words, to catch him in a lie or some sort of inconsistency. They go with their disciples, the wannabe Pharisees, and they go to Jesus, but they bring another group with them. They bring the Herodians. And the Herodians were people that were, you could probably surmise, were loyal to Herod. And that meant they were way political. They were still Jews. They still claimed to be religious, but their whole gig was that they were more loyal to Herod. They were more loyal to the government. They were more loyal to politics and even very lax on some of the things of the law in order to be loyal to the government. It's a classic example of what we call syncretism, where we are synchronizing with the word. We are world. We are blending in with the world so that you really can't tell where, where one is and one stops and one begins. And a good thing that never happens today, right? Christians never blend in with the world like these Herodians. And truth be told, the Pharisees aren't too far behind. However, they pride themselves on their obedience to the law. The letter of the law, including all 600 other tasks of the Mishnah that they threw in there to protect the law. So that's what they pride themselves. Now, now think, you're, you're smart people. I know we've been caffeinated already this morning. You probably are already thinking, what in the world are these two groups then doing together? If we have one side, the Pharisees, who are all about the letter of the law, and then you have the other group, the Herodians, who are not so much about the letter of the law, but they're all about the government. They're all about politics and care less about the law. Why in the world are these two people together? Enemies. What would two enemies on opposite sides, opposite sides of religious life be coming together for? Well, to team up to trap Jesus, because as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Let's look at what these two opposing groups have planned. They look again at what they say. They say, teacher, we know that you're true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully, and we know that you're a man of integrity, and we know that you would never be swayed by anyone's personal opinion because you're far too smart and devastatingly handsome for any of that. If your eyes are not rolling, they should be. I heard lots of snickers as Paul was reading the passage. This is ridiculous. They believe none of this. It's complete and total sucking up, if I can use that term on a Sunday morning. It doesn't make any sense. They know, they don't believe any of this. They believe that Jesus is a liar. They believe that he's not the Messiah. And they drop the big question after pitiful attempt to butter him up. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And there it is. And we see what they're after. Here's the trap. And honestly, it's not a bad trap. They're trying to force Jesus into a spot between a rock and a hard place. It's not really a bad trap because if Jesus says, yes, it is legal for us, according to the law of God, to pay taxes, then the Herodians are then wonderfully elated by that news, right? Because they love the government. And then the Pharisees can therefore turn around and accuse Jesus of supporting the occupying Roman force. And say, so you're denying your people and you're supporting the enemy government. However, if Jesus says no, then the Pharisees are going to cheer 
because, yes, we don't want to support the government. They're terrible. They're opposing us. And then the Herodians can turn around and go tattle on Jesus to the governing authorities and say, this man doesn't pay taxes. It's not a bad trap. They're trying to force him between a rock and a hard place. Let's put this together. Two opposing groups going to Jesus with a common goal of trapping him in his answer. All they want him to do is pick a side. Just pick a side, Jesus. Just tell us what side you're on. Are you Republican or are you Democrat? Come on, just tell us right now. Give it to us. Who's right? Imagine that. They go to Jesus, God in the flesh, the Messiah, and all they want to know from him is one question. Should we pay taxes or not? This is called reductionism. It means taking something that's incredibly deep, profound, and complex and reducing it unfairly to a simple, singular point. What happens when you do that? You basically misrepresent everything. And think of Jesus on mission for the gospel, and all they want to know is his stance on the issue of taxes. And why? To trap him. To get him on one side or the other. To get him, to get him destroyed. To, to eliminate him. So much so, again, that two enemy groups that have no business working together or fellowshipping together are combining forces and compromising everything they believe in in order to then trap Jesus. And so here's the point. Reducing Christianity often leads to spiritual compromise. Reducing Christianity often leads to spiritual compromise. Look at what we have here in our story. Again, these two enemy groups uh, aimed at a common enemy, Jesus, and in doing so, what are they doing? They're compromising themselves spiritually. Pharisees, as teachers of the law of God, are working with the group, the Herodians, who really could care less about the law of God. And what does that say about the Pharisees' dedication to the law of God? It's pretty pragmatic, right? As long as we get rid of Jesus, I don't care. They can say what they want about the law of God. That's the most important thing. They're compromising. Again, good thing this doesn't happen today, right? I was thinking how fortunate slash unfortunate the timing of this passage may be. I mean, too bad it's not November, right? <laughs> that we would be in an election, election cycle. If we take our faith and we reduce it to a single political question, for example, what do we do, church? We just dumb down Christianity. We disregard everything else. We misrepresent so much else if we just boil it down to this one political issue or this one issue. If we say that Christianity is all about what political party we support, we reduce the gospel to politics. If we say the most important thing in the world is for Christians of how you deal with social justice or racial equality or gender equality or the refugee crisis, what have we done? We've compromised the message of the gospel and unfairly reduced it to something that it's not. The central message of Christianity is none of those things. The central message of our faith is the gospel message. It's the good news of what God did to reconcile a people that rejected him back to himself. And you can't just reduce that to a talking point. Now, I am not, I can tell some of you are getting a little squirrely here. I'm not saying that those things are not important, okay? Not saying that. We need to care about refugees. We need to care about racial justice. We need to care about the poor or the oppressed. We need to care about all these other issues, but they can't be as important as the gospel. They cannot be. That's reductionism, and we need to resist that. That's what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing. 
We can't make it seem as though Christianity is only about select issues, as important as they may be. Instead, how are we called to view issues? Through a biblical worldview, meaning what does the Bible have to say about those issues? And more to the point, how important are those issues related to the central point of the Bible, which is the gospel? I'll try to give you an example. Vernon has an ecumenical club. And if you're familiar with the world of religion, ecumenical just means everybody gets along, right? doesn't matter necessarily what, what church you're from or what else. We just want all the, the pastors and the leaders to be together. I am not invited to the ecumenical club. I was once, and then I was, I don't remember saying anything that bad, <laughs> but I was never asked back again. Here's... <laughs> Here, I was wondering if somebody was going to say that. Here's, here's what basically the, the basic problem with the ecumenical club is, right? If I'm standing there and, and they just had a whole bunch of services leading up to Easter, they had one every Wednesday, right, that led up to Easter, on that stage at any time in whatever church there are, there's multiple versions of the gospel represented on that stage multiple versions of how you are saved. I can't compromise the message of the gospel for unity. We can't hold unity so high that we lose the gospel. That doesn't make sense. Now, that being said, what happens if, uh, heaven forbid, there was a tornado or something that blew through Sussex County, right? And it was all hands on deck, and people were homeless, and people needed food, and people needed a place to stay, and everything else like that. I would wholeheartedly link arms with anybody to help. But we cannot misrepresent the gospel. We cannot. For the sake of unity. That's when you make unity the most important thing. You lose the gospel. A display of unity in the local church is a good thing, but it's not the most important thing, and is not at the level of the gospel. We can't reduce Christianity to unity. We can't reduce the gospel message to just helping those in need or unity over division. Reducing the gospel will always lead or often lead to spiritual compromise. Let's see how Jesus then reacts to this pitiful attempt to put him in the corner. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Okay, Jesus, tell us how you really feel. Why, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Note, this is one important thing, right? We can't reduce uh, Christianity to a single issue, nor can we, watch this, reduce Jesus to a certain personality, right? Everybody loves kind and gentle, as my friend Ryan says, precious moments, Jesus, Right? Everybody loves the guy with the lamb around his shoulders and the kindness. How kind is he being right here? He's not being real kind, is he? Those poor Pharisees, he probably hurt their feelings and made them feel unsafe. We have to remember that Jesus cannot be reduced to a single personality either, can we? He's firm and harsh when he needs to be firm and harsh. And he's kind and gentle when he needs to be kind and gentle. He says, what are you doing, you, you hypocrites? Here's the hypocritical part. 
Jesus asks them for the coin that they are using to pay the tax. He's like, okay, cool. You want to talk about paying the tax? What, what, show me the coin. What, show me the money. What, what coin are you going to use to pay the tax? And they produce a denarius. And I have a picture of a denarius that you in the back row will never see. But you can probably see on that coin from the back row that there's a face on it. That's the face of the emperor. In this case, um, I can't remember the name of the emperor. He just went out of my head. But in the back, we also have, the, the, there's inscription in Latin going all around it. It gives the name of the emperor, but it also says on the front that he is divine. And on the back, in Latin, it says that he is a high priest. And you can see him sitting on his throne right there. And so, get this, if a Jew is carrying around a coin with the picture and image of someone representing themselves to be a god and saying that they're a high priest, they're pretty much blowing away the first and second commandments of the law right away. And not only that, they're probably on the temple grounds. And so, a pious Jew, a right Jew, would never, ever, ever, ever have such a coin in their possession, because it violates the law of God. Jesus calls them out, says, show me that coin that's in your pocket. You, you want to talk to me about paying taxes? You got a picture of a false god on your coin that you're going to give to the emperor. Busted. Jesus calls them out, brilliantly snares them in a mistake of their own. The coin probably came from the Herodians, but still, right, maybe the, maybe the Pharisees were kind of rolling their eyes when, it's, when they saw them, you know, break it out of their pocket. I'm sure the Herodians would carry all, they probably had the whole set, right, because they love the emperor. But still, you see the compromise. Again, if it is from the Herodians and the Pharisees are compromising because look at that idolatrous coin that they're, that they're talking about right there. One commentator says this, if they were using the emperor's idolatrous coinage, they could hardly object to paying his tax. Are they coming after Jesus about whether or not it is lawful? That's what they're doing, meaning according, not according to Roman law, but according to God's law. That's what they're talking about. According to our law, Jesus, because you claim to be the Messiah, is this okay to do? And then they give him this coin. He's like, is paying taxes okay to do? How about carrying around that coin in your pocket? Is that okay to do? No, that's absolutely not okay to do. All in the attempt to what? Reduce Christianity to the topic, the question of paying taxes or not paying taxes. Here's the point. Reducing Christianity often leads to hypocrisy. Reducing Christianity often leads to hypocrisy. If you reduce Christianity to a single issue, then you will inevitably have to be hypocritical on other issues. If that's the main thing that you're focusing on, you're taking your eyes off of a lot of other things. It's our human nature. If we focus on a single object, there are going to be other objects that are going to go out of focus. But as for Jesus and the Pharisees, this wasn't the only time that he called them hypocrites. This is actually, I counted them. There's six other times in Matthew alone where he calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they're attempting to reduce obedience to the law. They're attempting, of course, not Christianity because they don't care about Christianity, but following God. They're, they're trying to reduce following God to what? Doing what we say to do following the law, following the Mishnah, acting like us, doing all these things, that's following God, and that is not following God. 
It's the whole point of legalism. The Pharisees are saying, in order to be a follower of God, you have to live like we live. You have to do what we do. They reduce it to that, and they're hypocrites. Christians have always struggled with being perceived as hypocrites. I love you all dearly, but we're all hypocrites in some way, shape, or form or another. Anytime we sin, we're a hypocrite. Because we say that our lives are to honor and obey Jesus Christ above all things, and then we turn our backs on him when we sin. The Greek word literally means an actor who wears a mask. When we are hypocritical, we are claiming to live a life in obedience to God, yet we disobey him in some area. Likewise, when we focus too much on one area of the Christian life, we reduce the gospel, we reduce Christianity, and the more that we focus on that one area, inevitably other areas slip. So where is it for you? Where is it for us? I'm in this too. Where are we most prone to hypocrisy? Where are we inconsistent between what we profess and how we actually live? We all have those pockets of sin in our lives, in the corners of our heart. What do we do when we realize, what do we do when we come across hypocrisy? Right? Maybe the Holy Spirit will continue to convict us, right? And today we'll realize that we're a hypocrite in some way, shape, or form when we run into sin. So then what? What do we do? We repent. We confess. We head back to the cross and receive the forgiveness that has already been won for us. Confession and repentance kill hypocrisy. What makes it grow? Denying it. That's what makes the world furious at Christians. Because we know we sin. They know we sin. And then we call it something else. Or we try and rationalize it. Or we don't even admit it. Repentance and confession kill hypocrisy, but it's going to grow back until we are in glory with Jesus, and so we must continue to be watchful. We must continue to be vigilant. We must take that mask off every time that we feel that we are being hypocritical. We must be authentic. We must be legit. When we are acting hypocritically, when we're holding some things too highly and we sin in other areas, we confess, we repent, we grow, and we change more into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Reducing Christianity to a single issue often leads to hypocrisy and other issues. And let's see how Jesus then lands the plane in this encounter. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, mm, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him, and they went away. Can you imagine the look on their faces when Jesus asked for that coin? And Jesus is staring at it, and they're like, he got us again. And Jesus looks at the coin, probably turning it over in his hand. Whose picture is that? He says, Whose face is on this coin? He says, it's Caesar's. Okay, so what's the problem? Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give to God's what is God's. It's not a question of reducing this to a single right or wrong transaction here. This is a question of ownership. You live in the Roman Empire, don't you? 
The Roman authorities are asking you to pay a tax to live here, aren't they? Like it or not, give them what's theirs. They protect you with their army. They give you food or water or whatever else it is. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But that last part's super important. Give to God's what is God's. What does God own? Everything. God owns everything. God owns Rome. God owns the emperor. God owns you. Some commentators have drawn a parallel here, and I think it's a really good one. Just as the image of Caesar is on that coin, identifying that coin as his property, so the image of God is on every one of our souls, indicating that he is our master, our emperor, our king. God stamped on every soul of every human being on the planet, whether they want to know it or not or reject it or not, you're mine. I made you. I have image of me on your soul. You know I exist. I put it there. Jesus brilliantly cuts a middle line in this debate. It's not about paying taxes. It's not one side or the other. Jesus says you can do both. You can still pay the tax and you can still honor God. You honor God as king and owner of your soul. And you honor the authorities that are over you. But if you want to reduce this to a right or wrong, you're going to miss the point. I'll put it this way. Reducing Christianity often leads to then a spiritual identity crisis. It leads to a spiritual identity crisis. Let's, let's state the obvious. Jesus isn't stopping anyone from paying taxes here. He's saying give to Caesars what's Caesars, right? We need to obey the government. They are established by God. But here's the thing. They're established by God for a very important reason. They're his servants for justice. They help administer the law and order. And as long as the government is not causing us to sin or break God's law in some other way, we obey them. But we remember our spiritual identity over and above our obedience to God, right? So we have the image of whoever in our pocket, right? But the image of God is stamped on our soul. So then we remember our primary identity. The Bible talks about paying taxes and other things elsewhere. It is kind of a, it's not the main point of this passage, ironically. But just to clear that up, for example, Romans 13, 5 through 7 I think I put it in your bulletins. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We see that consistently in the New Testament, consistently in the words of Jesus. But church, we have to remember, when the government asks us to do something that is breaking God's law, then we say no. We saw this in COVID. They said, you can't meet. We played their reindeer games for a little bit, and then we said, that's not going to happen anymore because the Bible calls us to meet. Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the gathering. Something special. You know, we're gathered here today, but there's something special about this. The Holy Spirit is among us. It's in his, his church as they are gathered on the Lord's day, worshiping, growing, edifying themselves. Sorry, government, you can't tell us not to meet. 
We will meet. We will continue to meet. And if that question comes up again, we're going to continue to meet. But if it's a matter of paying a tax, we pay the tax. This isn't saying, right? I want, this is another thing that I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying, these are flashing lights in case you didn't know that, right? I'm not saying that we just blindly, whatever, pay taxes. Okay, Murphy decides we need a grass tax or something. I don't know what it is. And, you know, we just pay. We have a system here. We need to study why that is. We just speak into that process. If something unjust, we have every reason to speak against it. Right? It's not just saying blind obedience, but if it's a simple matter of paying the tax, we pay the tax. But again, let's, let's expand this to the point to where Jesus does. It's not about just checking the box to pay the tax. It's about ownership. The biblical worldview says God created us in his image and he owns us. We can't reduce that to just paying a tax or not paying a tax. It's a question of spiritual identity. Let's look at a wider example here, maybe. Let's say you're going through a trial or an adversity or a situation or that one thing that's in your life that your life seems to be just about this one thing, right? Your life gets reduced to this one trial, this question, this whatever, this do I move, do I not move, do I take this job, do I not take this job, whatever the question might be, and that consumes you. The temptation is to do what? Reduce your entire relationship with God to be about what? That thing. Hey, God, glad you're here. How about that thing? Hey, God, you know, I read in Scripture today, it took me a long time to find a verse, but actually there was a verse dealing with that one thing. So help me with that one thing. Could you, could you do that? Our whole relationship with God then becomes about what? That one question. We've reduced that, whatever the issue is. That trial, that situation, that adversity has become what? Your spiritual identity. And that's not correct. What have you done? You've forgotten about your true spiritual identity. Your spiritual identity is not just that trial or adversity or situation that you don't like. You're a child of the king. You're called to be growing and changing more into the image of Jesus. And guess what? He uses all things to do that, including that trial and adversity that's in your face. So it's not just whether or not that goes away. It's what God is doing to transform you into his likeness through that trial. You've got to remember that. God, when will this stop? When will you give me a break? When will you give me a spouse? Or when will you give me a better spouse? Just kidding. When will... When will my spouse act like, I should say, when will my spouse act, I see a lot of elbows going on right now. (laughs) When will my spouse act like the spouse that I want him or her to act like? When will he be a biblical husband or when will she be a biblical wife? When will I get a better job? When will I get a job in the first place? Is that all we want God to do for us? Just that one thing? We've reduced our relationship to just that one thing. Trials and adversity and issues have a way of shrinking our whole spiritual identity to just be about that one thing. That's what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing here. That's not our spiritual identity. Now, here's the balance. There's nothing wrong with asking God anything, okay? So in times of trial and adversity, right, more flashing lights, right? And what I'm saying here, don't, we, don't, we don't just, oh, I can't pray about that because Pastor Mike said not to. That's not what I'm saying. Pray about that. 
But pray with the balance. Pray with the open-handed perspective that, God, I know you're going to glorify me through this or glorify you through this. I know you're going to change me into the image of you somehow. That's what I want. But let's reduce the temptation to reduce our spiritual identity to just whether or not the storm will pass and when it will. We're dealing with the creator God of the universe here. He can make a storm pass in a nanosecond. So if he hasn't, he's doing something. He's doing what? And here's the thing. The primary calling of every believer to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus Christ. And Jesus' problem is not whether or not to pay the tax. Jesus' problem is who these people who claim to be his followers, who are standing in front of him, have become. That's Jesus' problem. They've lost their spiritual identity in just about this one issue. Jesus says, it's my image stamped on your soul. You belong to me. How dare you try and push me into a corner about this little issue? Why? Here's, and I hope this big idea hangs together when we've seen Christianity is a supreme allegiance, not a single issue. Christianity is a supreme allegiance, not a single issue. Christianity cannot be reduced to a single issue or a handful of issues, whether those be political issues or whether they be personal issues. We must resist the temptation to reduce the depth and breadth of our faith in the Almighty God to a handful of issues. Reducing Christianity often leads to spiritual compromise. It leads to hypocrisy. It leads to a spiritual identity crisis. But here's the thing. Again, one could, and maybe some of you have gotten there in your mind, one, one could say that Christianity is actually about one single issue. And I think it's that supreme allegiance that we talk about. What is, what is the one thing that supreme allegiance to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is supposed to bring us? It's supposed to bring glory to God by being transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. We have a life that is devoted to Christ. All of life, all of life situations, all of the issues, not just one issue, all of the life of a Christian is supposed to fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ we must cultivate that biblical worldview, that filter through which we process all things. And a biblical worldview says over and over again that over all other allegiances, we owe ourselves to God. That's what you're signing up for when you become a Christian, just in case anybody doesn't know that. When you sign up to become a Christian, you are saying, I owe everything to you. I follow you above everything else. How do we do that? We do that by becoming more like his son. That little Bible word called sanctification. I've been reading some of J.C. Ryle's classic book, Holiness in the Mornings. It's, it's funny how God works because in the mornings I usually read a, a book that you know, stirs my heart before I actually get into the word and spend time thinking about these things. And I have all of my books now up in the law office. And so when I run out of a book in the morning... It's kind of painful because I don't have any books at home. And then I'm like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to drive to the office and do that in the morning? But I did have one book on my Kindle. 
and it was J.C. Ryle's Holiness. It's a terrible book. Don't read it. It's very convicting. Very, very convicting. But the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. He's like, nah, we're going we're gonna to point him here today. And I read a little bit of J.C. Ryle's book. He has a way of stopping you in his tracks with his writing. He focuses on, in that book called Holiness, he focuses on holiness. And he says, if you could reduce Christianity to one single thing, that would be it. Glorifying God through our sanctification, through our holiness. He puts it this way. In short, he says, where there is no sanctification of life, there's no real faith in Christ. The idea that, yeah, sometimes we as evangelicals can say like, oh, justification by faith, cool, good, check, hold on here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How is that seen? It's seen through our sanctification. It's seen through the way that we actually transform ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ. And so while I do say that Christianity is a supreme allegiance, not a single issue, the way that that is applied, right, how we walk this out, church, is becoming more like Jesus Christ and less like sin in our actual lives. Jesus was obviously irritated by this exchange. He's like, look, hypocrites, it's not about paying taxes or not. It's about supreme allegiance and all decisions in your life, including the one you're trying to do now with this silly little plan of trying to entrap me, has to go through that filter. All decisions flow from that perspective. And church, we need to think bigger in our lives. We need to get our noses out of the little details of life to resist the temptation to reduce Christianity and think the bigger picture. If I belong to God and my supreme allegiance is to him, how do I glorify him by making my whole life submit to him, by becoming more like his son? Christianity is a supreme allegiance and not a single issue. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short and powerful um, account that you give us in your holy word. We pray that, Lord, as we investigate this, as we think about this, as we apply this, as your Holy Spirit hopefully will continue to do the work in our hearts and in our souls this week as we think about this, as we talk about these things in care groups and Bible studies and over conversations today and in this week, I pray that you will grow in our hearts and cause us to widen that perspective of it is not just about a single or a handful of issues. Though we might be passionate about them, no, we might be not, though we might be knowledgeable about some of them, it is about supreme allegiance working its way out through sanctification. Help us to do that, Lord, and we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.